Welcome. I'm Uri. And I'm Rifki, and you're listening to Talking Talkless, the podcast where we talk about Jewish life and life in general. So, Uri, we got a lot of feedback after our latest episode. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool. We're getting a lot of feedback, and this week the feedback actually um, really made me think. Just a, a reminder to our listeners, uh, last week we talked about the Social Justice and Modern Orthodoxy panel, and specifically the, the piece where I got a lot of feedback, Uri, in, in informal conversations and in some emails that we got from listeners. Um, specifically, people talked a lot about the racism in orthodoxy segment. Right. Yes. So one of our listeners, Dina, and then another listener, our friend Noah, um, both of them brought up the topic of racism in the Orthodox community and basically commented on the fact or reacted to the fact that when I was presenting that phenomenon, I I seemed to be minimizing it and saying that it doesn't really exist or if not that it doesn't exist, that it's not significant. And they both uh, pushed back on that and made me reevaluate some of my opinions. And, and I do, th- what I would revise my opinion to say is that um, racism does exist in the Orthodox community. And in, more so than just like, oh, there are some people who are racist. Meaning, and I don't like this word, but it's a systemic <laughs> problem in a way. Um, I think obviously we're talking about issues of degree and the racism that we're referring to is is nothing like, let's say, the racism of Charlottesville or, or that kind of thing. But that doesn't make it okay, and it's still racism. And it's something that I think we both would agree needs to be addressed. And I really liked, I, I will reiterate what I said last time, which is that the potential solution that was mentioned on the panel by Dr. Steinhain and that w- we both agreed with was a great thing, the idea of... Um, communities, especially children in school, um, interacting uh, on equal footing with other groups and not as a charity project, but as a collaboration of some sort or just playing together or whatever it is. I think that that kind of um, interaction can go a very long way in fixing some of these systemic problems. I actually had a long conversation with uh, with another listener, Adi, who was uh, making a similar point that she thought that that's something that the Orthodox community really fails on. And she felt, uh, someone who came from the Orthodox community, like she had real limitations in the way that she approached sort of the outside quote-unquote world, especially as she reached adulthood, went to college, etc. Um, and honestly, I'm not really sure of the solution. I was thinking about it more, obviously, in conversation with her, and I'm not really sure the best way for the Orthodox community to 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 work harder at that sort of integration, uh, especially you know integration. I'm not sure how much. The I don't know if integration is the right word. To integrate, um, but communication, participation, right? But dialogue. really forming substantive relationships, right. sort of beyond. Um, there's an organization. Have you ever heard of the organization Bridges? Rings a bell. Right. I know it exists at NYU. I- I'm not sure if it exists at other college campuses, but it's it brings a group of Jewish students and Muslim students together for service trips. And the point is not just, oh, we're building houses together. Look, we can be friends. But, you know, every night and every day, there's meant to be sort of meaningful, structured dialogue around the points of contention. And actually, uh, I know a lot of people who have gone through bridges and now really count members of those other communities of Jews and of Muslims as really close friends and bridges facilitating those real intense experiences and relationships have really impacted yeah. these kids. I mean, I think that's very cool. You do have to, 
I mean, the cynical side of me wants to ask if that's a self-selecting group that is even it's open to something like that. Are already people predisposed to understand and want to be Even if that's true, with- though, there are probably a lot of students, you know, in high school or in elementary school who maybe are predisposed, their parents are, but they aren't given the opportunity. Just right, right. getting no. the opportunity it's to a, It's a nice thing no matter how you look at it, I, w- I think. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, that could relate to the Israel-Palestine conflict. Which, right. But I think the when we're talking about the Jewish American, African American conflict, I don't even want, I feel weird using that word because it's not like when you're talking about Jews and Muslims talking, it's very clear and obvious why there is tension, where the tension comes from and why dialogue is necessary. When it comes to Jews and blacks, it's like you hear people talking about that as conflicting groups and it's, complicated just to talk about why there is tension let alone right. how to I actually do- think deal with the tension we um last week we mentioned the whole uh tamika mallory and lewis farrakhan issue and i think we're actually gonna we're gonna make this a full segment for next week but i think um that's one of the interesting things that's is, the other side of this coin right exactly sort of the 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 built-in tensions between the jewish community and the black community or i say built in of course i, I hope it's not you know built in um but especially because you cannot, or I think we would think, you cannot be Jewish and Muslim and really feel like those two identities are fully a part of who you are in the same way that there are black Jews. And especially in the last week, a lot of black Jews have been writing about their experience and feeling sort of torn in their identity um, in a way that I, would, I, I wouldn't have assumed would be so difficult. And it's pretty sad, I think. Right. I definitely sad, definitely interesting mm-hmm. to have two groups that seem to be in conflict and then look at a group of a community of people that identify in in both ways right which you don't you you can't be jewish and muslim right i I mean i'm sure there are people you can have a jew parents who are one of each in different ways like that but yeah i mean so maybe maybe something that we can we'll get into more next week is like where these tensions come from and how they manifest because i think they manifest very differently on each side as they relate to the other yeah I, i would love to get into that more next week and of course you know, listeners, we would love to hear your feedback. If you read anything particularly interesting, anything that made your blood boil, anything you you found really, uh, you, you found yourself contemplating long after you stopped reading it, please send it along. We'd love to hear your thoughts in advance of our uh, our big topic next week. You know, Uri, I actually think we're the ones who made this uh, I was just going to say, I was contemplating whether or not to <laughs> brag about that. But like, obviously, you know, Jews have been talking about Farrakhan for decades, but we were... I mean, I think we really pushed it We were talking hump. about it last week. And <laughs> then talking bump. days after we brought it up it was then published in the mm-hmm. atlantic new york times I think it's all very the major clear major publications it's weird we didn't get uh, more credit, <laughs> credit but for that guys please uh, spam all the major news outlets let them know in my country there is problem and that problem is the jew they take everybody money they never give it back throw the jew down the well As we mentioned in our previous episode, last week was the annual APAC Policy Conference in Washington, D.C. APAC describes the conference on their website as 
the pro-Israel community's preeminent annual gathering. The event attracts more than 18,000 community and student activists from all 50 states and more than half of the Senate, a third of the House of Representatives, and countless Israeli and American policymakers and thought leaders. Basically, this thing is massive. And over the last number of years, it's pretty much gotten every major presidential candidate from both parties, with the notable exception of Bernie Sanders. So without getting into too much detail about the history of APAC and how it works, we'll have some links to that in the description for people who want to find out more. Just to give an idea of, of what APAC is about, here's uh, a little bit of the uh, highlight uh, video that they themselves put out from last year's conference. This is actually my first APAC policy conference this year, so I'm coming into it really excited. The energy here is absolutely palpable. It's just amazing the amounts of people that come here. This is a city. Policy conference is always on my calendar, and certainly this year is no exception. Just happy to be here. What an indescribable feeling to be surrounded by so many true friends. Thank you for being here and for joining together for three of the most important days affecting Israel's future. Now more than ever, America needs a strong Israel. And Israel needs a strong America. I am proud to stand here today and call myself a pro-Israel member of Congress. I believe that friendships matters, for I am a pro-Israel advocate. I think a really powerful question that not many people actually ask out loud is, how is this okay? How does APAC exist? How are we supposed to feel about it? Something that I ask myself all the time as, I guess, a stereotypical, neurotic, insecure Jew is, what do the non-Jews think about it? If I wasn't Jewish, how would I feel about, about this lobbying group that kind of descends upon Washington in the thousands every year and meets with and hears from really like the whole gamut of our political leaders. Like there really is no other group or conference or lobby in existence that attracts that type of across the board bipartisan support. Right. Yeah, the the group that's most often compared to APAC in not a positive way is the NRA, the National Rifle Association. But you but know, it's night and NRA, day because that's exactly. extremely the NRA is partisan. Very, very group. much supported on the Republican side, and that's really where um, the NRA puts its money and puts its lobbying and puts its advocacy. And APAC really, you know, claims and overall seems to be very clear that they are trying very hard to not be partisan, to not be tied to any one political organization or political party. Right. So even though APAC still enjoys this across-the-board bipartisan support in many ways, there are now competing groups such as J Street that disagree with APAC, and there are politicians such as Bernie Sanders who won't speak at APAC. So the two things I want to talk about are, first of all, how is it okay that APAC exists? And second of all, how should it be viewed on the spectrum of partisan politics? So from a technical perspective, I think APAC, um, it's interesting, APAC has a very sort of specific designation, international lobbying. So if I started a lobbying group for, you know, Irish people lobbying in Washington, I would be shut down, right? That is illegal. Foreign lobbying is, is very explicitly illegal. But APAC, 
is not a lobbying group technically for Israel. From their website, APAC is a bipartisan organization of U.S. citizens committed solely to strengthening, protecting, and promoting the U.S.-Israel relationship. So APAC claims that they are not representing Israeli interests, but they are representing the interests of Americans who want a strong U.S.-Israel relationship. So, I mean, Rifki, do you think that statement or that concept is problematic? Um, the fact that they're, in a way, using a loophole to just exist and do what they do, does that bother you? So it's hard to say. I mean, I'm not even sure if I'm honestly comfortable calling it a loophole. Right? APEC is not sort of uh, explicit or implicitly just taking directions from the Israeli government. Or if they are, they're doing it very well, on the sly. Well, so there was one major scandal. Right, that's true. Uh, do you want to... Yeah, and I'll just read that actually straight from Wikipedia. In April 2005, the policy director of APAC, Stephen Rosen, and the senior Iran analyst, Keith Weissman, were fired by APAC amid an FBI investigation into whether they passed classified U.S. information to the government of Israel. So there was sort of, they were clearly sort of acting on behalf of the Israeli government. It's, it's well, not like Israel I've, sent them. I, I take it more of that there is um, communication yes. between the yes. leaders of APAC and top level uh, Israeli government officials. Yes. I think that case might be an extreme example, but when you have people like Louis Farrakhan talking about, and obviously he's not the only one, talking about Jewish power, talking about Jews controlling the government, I'm sure... Farrakhan didn't mention APAC by name. He didn't even talk about Israel, really. But, I mean, obviously, this is one of the big things that people can point to and look at as an example of Jews controlling our government. And it's hard to argue against that because, in a way, it's true. I think it's a distortion of the truth, but there is truth in it. I think it's more productive for us now to talk a little bit about, let's say, the more, quote-unquote, legitimate criticism of APAC. So the largest competitor to APAC, even though they pale in size, is a group called J Street. Yeah, J Street is a another lobbying group um, for the Israel-US relationship, but J Street has a much more explicitly left-wing or almost, you know, anti-Netanyahu approach. Um, they're very explicit in their messaging and in their materials that they think that Israel has gone into a dangerous direction. And their argument is that being pro-Israel doesn't mean that we should sort of blindly follow leaders of Israeli government and policy who we really think are doing bad things for Israel and for America. And they're, they're sort of much more explicit. AIPAC tries its best to say, we want to do what's best for Israel and what's best for America. They don't have particular comments explicitly on settlements, on the rabbinate, things like that. J Street is much more clear about their positions about what Israel should be doing. Right. I mean, I think the the clash of philosophies here is APAC is gonna is saying it's our job to support and strengthen the state of Israel. And so if this is what the state of Israel represents right now and is doing, I don't think they would say we're going to blindly follow everything that they do and say, but for the most part, they're going to support that. And J Street, it's a, it's a much more difficult case to make in a way because they're saying they're pro-Israel, but to them, what, we, what you sort of like said in a nicer way, what they're basically saying is being pro-Israel doesn't mean being pro-Israeli policy. Right, pro the current Israeli so, government. Right, so then, then you get into a question of what does it mean to be pro-Israel. So actually, David Fried... It's interesting, hold on, before, before getting into that, I'm just thinking about there have been times where APAC has explicitly disagreed with the Israeli leadership, right? Which I think 
almost strengthens their case that no, 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 we're not, we're not yeah, a lobbying I mean, group for Israel. I, right. I mean, a perfect example of that, I think, would be how at this conference last week, the CEO of APAC, Howard Kaur, spoke to the conference about the importance of the two-state solution, two states for two people. And many people in the current administration in Israel either are explicitly against that or implicitly against that. And he actually got a lot of pushback from more right-wing elements for saying that. But I, I think another interesting thing that was said at the conference was David Friedman, the ambassador to Israel, kind of took a jab at J Street without mentioning them by name. J Street's motto is pro-Israel, pro-peace. What he said was, that's an offensive statement because and again, he didn't mention J Street by name, but if somebody says, I'm pro-Israel and I'm pro-peace, you're implying that the other people who are pro-Israel, namely the APAC people, are not pro-peace, or that, that the Israeli government itself is not pro-peace. And that, Friedman was claiming, is first of all not true, and second of all offensive. And that it's not, if, if J Street makes itself out to be the pro-peace group, they're implying that APAC is what, pro-war, pro-violence? I think, you know, I don't think that's true at all. And I think is I mean, I think it's hard, right? Because J Street is obviously using strong language to say you can be pro-Israel and disagree with the policies of right. the government. Right. I know that that's, that's what they stand for. But when I heard that Friedman said that, it resonated with me because I think they're taking an unfair jab at APAC because I think both groups are pro-peace. They just have different ideas of how to achieve that peace. Well, Rifki, what do you think about the claim that someone like a J Street or another anti-APAC organization would say, which is that APAC purports to represent the Jewish community in America or the pro-Israel community in America, when in fact that is false? They don't because most Jews in America are pro-two states. Most Jews in America are probably pro-Irandale. I don't know the numbers, but I would guess. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think I, I hear both sides, but I think APAC's fundamental assertion about themselves is that they're big tents. They do not get involved in specific policy, except for certain no, things like Iran. No, but that's like not Iran. true. Right. But APAC would say, we do not care whether you are pro or against settlement, you belong at APAC. That's what they would say. But at the end of the day, if they're supporting... I guess it's not just about what they say, it's about what they don't say. And so, you know, at this conference, they didn't talk about the African migrants in right. Israel. They didn't talk. If they, they don't criticize they, Israel. They didn't criticize Israel, exactly. So it's not just right. what, it's, but by not saying that, they're implicitly supporting those policies. Right. I mean, I don't know if I would say they're supporting those policies. I think they're supporting Israel. I, I think in general, when we say that what fundamentally APAC is for is a strong U.S.-Israel relationship, I think fundamentally that really they're looking out for Israel's best interests. Okay, but, but what about that question of if it were true that the majority of Jews in America disagree with the approach of APAC, if you ask them, they would disagree with it? Does that affect, how, do, how does that yeah, affect anything? Yeah, because I don't think APAC really, I don't think APAC is claiming to be the voice of American Jewry. I think APAC is claiming to be... Well, they say they're the largest gathering of the pro-Israel community. I think APAC is making the claim that they are going to advocate for what is best, or maybe they wouldn't even say this explicitly, but they're advocating for what is best for Israel. And if people in America, who American Jews, who are maybe, maybe loud and maybe not so loud, are against what they're doing... They don't care because they care about what they think is in Israel's Who best doesn't interest. Care? The leadership care. of APAC doesn't care. But what about the argument coming from a more left-wing person criticizing APAC on those grounds? 
do they have legitimacy in that argument? I think it's hard, right? One of the things that I think when J Street first started, I think it was pretty interesting to many of us, especially those of us um, who are on the left or maybe who feel a little bit differently than the current leadership of the Israeli government to see what was going to happen with J Street. But I think the unfortunate reality is that the people who are more left wing and Israel supporters just don't care as much, right? It's not just that Israel, (laughs) it's not just that APAC has stronger political support and more power and more money, all of which things are true, but they also, the people who are involved in APAC just care more than the people who hypothetically would be involved in J Street. The one thing that I would say to close is that part of what you just said, Uri, is is part of what I think I'm conflicted about a little bit and part of what I think makes this an, sort of an emotionally difficult conversation. I, I try to approach things or I, I like to think that I approach things from a logical perspective. And I would like to say that I would think about APAC from the perspective of someone who is looking out for the best interests of X or of Y and thinking about sort of what is good about APEC, what is bad about APEC. Is APEC good for America? Does APEC create a stronger America? They're talking about the US-Israel connection. Does it create a stronger Israel, stronger America? But I think that fundamentally, it's really hard for me to really think about APEC without thinking about my sort of emotional connection to Israel. And I think that that bias is, I'm not saying the bias is a bad thing. I mean, maybe I am saying the bias is a bad thing, but I think it does cloud my judgment. I, If it were, you know, Canada, US, and there were an organization that put so much money and so much political power into really lobbying American uh, Congress people to advocate for certain policies, you know, I'd be a little uncomfortable with that. If it were England, if it were Russia, if it were Kenya, if it were Turkey, all of these things would make me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't think the reason I'm less uncomfortable with Israel is because, oh, I think Israel is advocating for better things. I don't think that's the argument. I think for me, it really feels like I feel more... I feel more connected to Israel, and that's why, right. I don't know, it's a little I, hard to, to, to separate those. I understand that. I just disagree so strongly because I, <laughs> I think you're just holding yourself to an unfair and impossible standard because, like we've spoken about in the past, everybody advocates for their interests and their group's interests, and it happens to be, in this case, I think the interests of Israel and the interests of America align, and so there isn't even... I mean, America doesn't always think they align, right? America wanted this for the most deal. part for the most part okay now, Amer- did america want it or did the congress people the- voted for it they were lobbying yeah, yeah, they were apac lost the- right apac no. apac was lobbying all of these congress people to vote against the Iran obviously deal. there were many people in congress against it namely every single republican okay <laughs> so it's not Meaning, you can't say america wanted it the democrats wanted it of and the course democrats the same way charge. saying israel wanted x or israel didn't want x right it, no it's that's not- a very that's a I'm saying, very of course stark... there's always a majority and a minority, but I'm saying in general, right, it, America, the majority of the American political leadership thought and continues to think, right, that the Iran policy was better for American interests. Again, that's, that's an extremely that, partisan issue, right, so I, mean, I think the, it's a bad example of that I mean, type the of reason thing. I think it's a good example is because I think it's the most immediate thing where APAC very much, they were not... You know, APEC did say, oh, the reason we find this problematic is because we care about American interests. But I think, I mean, and I I have nothing written down, no evidence saying this, but I think from my perspective, the reason that APEC was so against this is because they thought it was bad for Israel. Again, it's hard to separate. You know, I I don't think every Republican in House and Senate cares about Israel more than America. They they were against it for American interests and reasons. So the interests align, as I'm saying. But, But anyway... 
or they're against so, it there's so much of the more political okay there's so obviously so much more we can talk about but right. we would love to hear what you think and what your criticisms of us are <laughs> and maybe it's always we'll, our favorite maybe we'll talk about some of that in the beginning of next week's episode thank you mr president for being a great friend to america's greatest ally israel in the United States, our support for Israel is bipartisan, and that is how it should stay. Israel must always have the ability to defend itself by itself against any threat. This is a moment that calls for an increased commitment on the part of every single person in this room. He will stand firmly shoulder to shoulder with the Israelis. It's in our national interest to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And that is why we will go to Capitol Hill together to make clear to our leaders all options except containment are on the table. Do not let anyone tell you that a nuclear-armed Iran is just Israel's problem. It is not. We must stand tall by our allies, and no ally stands taller for us than Israel. Israel is not only a Jewish value, it is a cherished American value. We want to finish off this episode with another segment of Did You Read It? Did you read the New York Times? Yes. The New York Observer? Yes. Washington Post? Yes. Wall Street Journal? Of course I read it. Did you read that steampunk article in Boing Boing? I did not like the end of it. Uri, this week I wanted to recommend an incredible book that I read a few weeks ago that I actually have not been able to get out of my head. It's called The Power by Naomi Alderman. Have you heard of it? I have not. Oh my God. It, it's, I actually have, I've been dreaming about it. I've been recommending it to everyone I see. Um, it's insane. <laughs> Basically, the premise of the book is that at some point in the future, young girls, really teenage girls who are, you know, starting to go through puberty, their bodies are changing. They suddenly realize that they have a power in their body. There's some sort of ele- electricity that they can control, starting with their hands, that when they touch things, they can fry them basically they can put an electric current into whatever they touch and then not only do these young women have the power they can start giving it to each other so women start giving it not women girls start giving it to their older sisters to their mothers and it's a power that starts getting spread around from woman to woman and basically the entire globe ends up in a world in which women have this intense physical power and men do not the book goes beyond that, trying to explore what a world would look like in this way. So obviously, we live in a world in which men have some sort of physical power, but basically power dynamics that, as they exist in 2018, men have more power Saying than it, women. But the, the book sort of asks, what would happen if that power dynamic flipped? If suddenly women were the one who were in charge? If I lived in some sort of country in which I could be kidnapped and then sold as a sex slave? I could take my hand, lift it up, touch the man who is trying to grab me and either maim him or kill him. How would that change the power dynamic of the world? And what I found so incredibly interesting and powerful and crazy about this book is that it went in a really different direction than I would have thought. And it really made me think very deeply about the nature of power and the nature of how power really corrupts all of us. And it was sort of deeply disturbing and deeply upsetting and deeply moving. So I would really recommend Uri and also our listeners to read this book. Oh. And if we wanted to start some sort of book club, <laughs> I'd be I'd be happy to get into that conversation. Well, thanks. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. 
And that's our show. Thank you all so much for listening. As always, we need your feedback. Email us at talkingtalklesspodcast at gmail.com and add your voice to the Facebook page, Talking Talkless Podcast. Uri, who do we have to thank? Well, as always, we have to thank Drive-In Productions for sponsoring our show and letting us record in their beautiful studio. And we also have to thank Triple Threat Trio featuring Rage Brigade because they give us our theme song and they are the official band of Talking Talkless. Thanks, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.